When it comes to discussing our bodies, we often get a little uncomfortable. Women's health issues are often seen as off-limits, taboo topics we just don't talk about. It's time for that to change. Let's talk. Welcome to the Brave Mama podcast, where we are going to do exactly that. Discuss everything from periods to pregnancy, motherhood to menopause. No topic is off-limits. Join Stephanie Thompson, the brave mama and author of The Day My Vagina Broke, as she asks other brave women about their personal health challenges and triumphs. You will learn, laugh and cry as Stephanie finds out everything you wanted to know but were too afraid or embarrassed to ask. So, grab a cuppa and enjoy. Hello, brave mamas. Are you ready to get the lowdown about everything women's health? I'm your host, Steph Thompson, and I can't wait to share our special guest with you today. I'm so glad you're here today for this heartfelt episode, which is jam-packed with so many tips for you to help you process a diagnosis of pelvic organ prolapse and also how to start your healing journey. But just before we get into it, I want to introduce Nicola Brown, who as a clinical psychologist has helped other mums through their struggles with infertility. Today, she opens up and shares her personal experience with IVF and pelvic organ prolapse. So grab a cuppa and a box of tissues as this is a real raw one. And I'm not sure who told me now, but I've always believed that peppermint tea is good for the soul. So I've grabbed a cup of Madame Flavors Organic Mints to help me with those aspects that are very close to home. All right, welcome Nicola Brown all the way from New Zealand. We're practically neighbours now, right? (laughs) we are hi (laughs) it's so lovely to have you we're going to jump straight in let's find out who was Nicola before becoming a mum oh before becoming a mum I'd like to think I'm the same person I think I pretty much am um oh so I'm 49 about to turn 50 and I was 30 oh yes I know thank you could be a lockdown birthday um uh 36 when I had my son mm-hmm. and uh, before that my wife had been together oh this is hard math um <laughs> a long time anyway. around about that yeah <laughs> yeah many many years we got together when I was in my mid-20s so we'd yeah. probably been together at least um at least 10 years when we had him mm-hmm. um and uh whew, who was I before that I just finished a PhD um in medical communication actually okay. which leads me to some interesting observations of all of the um health interactions that I'm having <laughs> now because of my own health issues um probably leads me to be a little bit picky um, about some of the things that people say and do okay. uh what else I'm a clinical psychologist and um I don't know because I should really know how to answer this question I yeah well like I I read um, somewhere that you're also a stand-up comedian, which is amazing. I am now. I wasn't, I wasn't before I became a mum, but yes, I am. <laughs> yes, I do stand-up comedy. Yeah, wow. Um, I like to – somebody recently described me as um, a master or, I guess, mistress of reinvention, 
and okay. I guess I kind of am because I'm constantly finding new things that I like to do and throwing myself into them um and yeah so I can't remember what I was into actually before I had my son but yes I've taken up a lot of fun hobbies since that's I had him. great and I love that yeah. you said that you feel like you're the same person that that's I think that's pretty rare you know before becoming a mum and afterwards I think a lot of mums that I've spoken to say oh I've lost myself. I don't know who I am. I don't even know what I did before having kids anymore. It's a, it's a juggling act, I guess. But um, yeah, I mean. Well, that's interesting because I, I would almost say um, I think I've been somebody who's kind of unapologetically been myself forever. But I probably have found a lot more things that I love and that I love to do in more recent years, actually. So. Okay. Um, yeah, I would, I'd, I think, I'm, I mean, we tried to have a baby for a long, long time. So it was a seven year, it took seven years to have him. That's and, a journey. Um, that is a journey. It was a journey and it was very difficult and involved my wife trying first for a long time. Mm-hmm. And she's a bit older than me. So then we switched to me uh, and then a lot of secondary infertility as well. So um, okay. difficulty, couldn't have another one. Uh, and I think we sort of, we went, we had a few sperm donors too um, before getting pregnant with Flynn. We had multiple miscarriages, early pregnancies, the whole, you know, a lot. Wow. Um, yeah, it was, it was a really big journey to get there. And at the same time, I was working in fertility counselling. So I was oh, the irony. <laughs> going through it on a personal level, but also supporting a lot of other people with their own different but resonating of course similar things having that lived experience would have been I can only imagine really helpful to those other women but then trying to live through that yourself and then helping others wow that that's intense isn't it I can't even imagine yeah it is and I don't I don't think um mental health professionals have to or possibly even can experience everything their clients do of course um you can't but I remember I worked for the fertility clinic for a few years before we started trying and then I was still in that role. We started trying, it wasn't working. We were going through the same kind of monthly cycles of hope and disappointment that other people were going through. And I thought, mm, I thought I got it before. Like I, and I think I still did an okay job before. I thought I did, but actually once you go through it, there's so many subtleties and um, there's a shift. layers of difficulty. Yeah. That I really felt like I got it on a different level. Okay. Yeah. Right. Mm. Wow. That's um. I wasn't expecting you to say that. So I'm just I'm just taking you know that. that <laughs> yeah. I'm just taking that ago. for yeah. a moment because you know both mums. Was that? This is a question just coming from that. Having both of you gone through that fertility, was that helpful for each other supporting? You know that yin and yang. I think so. I I mean I don't know because I don't have the experience of you know I don't have the comparison of going through it in a a heterosexual couple as well but um I don't know maybe it was helpful in some ways and possibly not helpful in others you know yeah yeah Um, because we were both really close to that experience it was really deeply disappointing for both of us when it wasn't working and really really upsetting for her um because she would have loved to have had a baby as well so very very hard for her when we switched to me even though it made sense to do that okay. um, and really really hard too for both of us when we stopped trying altogether for a, a second baby that was yeah layers of difficulty that we hadn't 
foreseen. Um, so, yeah, we probably were really good at the emotional support, but also a bit too close to it sometimes too. Yeah. it was you know, so hard for both of us. Of course. And Flynn. Mm. Flynn came into the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Beautiful baby. Uh, what was yeah. that experience like? What was that birthing experience like? Um, it was really difficult. Um, the pregnancy was pretty straightforward for me, um, which was really lucky. I was, you know, normal kind of discomfort in the third yeah, trimester. Yeah. I couldn't, couldn't sleep, couldn't get comfortable, got a terrible cold that wouldn't go away, yeah. that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> snored like a demented tractor, apparently, <laughs> so that made me really unpopular. <laughs> pretty sure I woke myself up a lot. Um, probably woke him up a lot too. Yeah. Definitely kept Rose awake. Um, we chose to do renovations in the third trimester. That was of a course. really dumb move. Yeah. <laughs> Don't, I think a lot of um, people do that, you know. Nesting, yeah, isn't it called know. nesting? I suppose, yeah. Insanity? But just looking back, not a good, yeah, not, not good. Yeah, exactly. Something like that. Um, the, so I went into the birth under the weather. Like I, I really yeah. had been unwell and I'd had to go on steroids um, because something to do with him being affected by me being so under the weather. Okay. I'm foggy now. Yep. Um, but I had to go on steroids and he was a week overdue. Yes. Uh, it was the heaviest snowfall. <laughs> I live <gasps> in Dunedin, oh, uh, wow. New Zealand, and it was the heaviest snowfall we'd had in decades. And probably we haven't had one like that since, actually. It was dramatic. Um, our midwife couldn't get to the hospital. She couldn't get out of her driveway, so that was interesting. Um, oh, but anyway, we've got like all these friends were ringing us saying, get to the, just go to the hospital. Like, just yeah. go. <laughs> <Look> <laughs> Don't at get stuck at home. Yeah. And um, went, got induced. Nothing was really happening. Um, got induced. And then it was all very slow and not progressing, you know, as, okay. as it should. And then he got in distress. So it was everything, forceps, fontus, uh, epidural, uh, this is not the order these things happened in, obviously. Um, yeah, yeah. And uh, episiotomy, uh, which I didn't know until very recently, was dreadfully badly repaired. Right. So um, that's part of the problems that I have now. Um, and, yeah, it was brutal, like really brutal. And I know somebody's written a book recently called Why Did Nobody Tell Me or something like that mm-hmm. about childbirth and gynae issues. And that's what I said to people afterwards, like, why do we not talk about how difficult birth can be, like how dreadfully difficult it can be? Yeah. And I remember um, my a friend of mine coming around to the house when Flynn was little to see him and see us. And she was somebody I'd always thought wasn't going to have kids. And so I was quite upfront with her about what the birth was like. And then she left. And a few weeks later, she got in touch. She said, oh, I'm pregnant. And and I was like, oh, my God, like I've broken the conspiracy of silence. Like I told her stuff that you're not supposed to tell somebody. She, she was a doctor. She was absolutely fine about it. But, but it just made me aware of all the stuff that we don't say about yes. birth and yes. um, how much. But it really was bad. Like he was very, very stuck. Um, we both were unwell afterwards. I was in hospital for a week. He was there for a week too. Mm. We were on different wards and different floors of the hospital. It's dreadfully hard. And um, I remember saying to the midwife, she came to see me. I couldn't walk. And so I could only get to see him when an orderly could take me to see him um, or when somebody could take me in a wheelchair. And he wasn't doing that well either because he had inhaled meconium. And um, this giant baby, (laughs) because he's always been really long, 
yeah. now very tall, but giant baby in amongst all the other tiny babies in there. You know, like it just yeah. it looked terrible. Like I felt bad with this giant baby who was actually doing okay, but still all these alarms for all the other wee babies going off and stuff. Um, and, yeah, I remember saying to the midwife, she came to see me a couple of days after he was born and she was a woman with a great sense of humour. And yeah. I said, oh, well, you know, thank goodness we didn't go for a home birth. And she looked at me and she said, well, if we'd gone for a home birth, Nicola, one of you could be dead. Oh, jeez. That's a big reality hit. Were you ever offered Mm. a cesarean section through that? Through that? No, I'm sure it would have been much better if I had a season. I think by the time they realised how difficult things were, he was too far through. So yeah, yeah. And I have heard that if you try and have a cesarean and kind of pull them back out, you can do more damage as well right if they've already gone too far down yeah was he posterior Mm -hmm. did he come out facing the face up uh he was sitting he was the right direction it's just i'm a pretty small person and he's a baby with a huge head it's just one of those things that people are like oh i hope i have a little baby well i had a baby who was quite slim but with an enormous head and you can't predict that because we don't have those crystal balls and the x-ray vision to see that baby's head is big or I don't know I just think in the medical field there's got to be something coming where we can look into these things and try and prevent this stuff because stories like yours and mine are becoming really common really common Mm, I know and more more also I actually bumped into that midwife just a couple of months back and we were walking our dogs together because we go to the same dog park and she said her job is even harder now. Like she remembered my birth because it was a pretty dramatic one yeah. for Flynn's birth. But um, she also said that it's every, almost every birth is complicated now. She said it doesn't matter how young or how, you know, oh. like, or who don't, you don't think have risk factors, um, Yep, she said almost every birth is complicated and she did not know why. She couldn't figure out why. She said babies are are quite big. Yeah. Um, But apart from that, she said they don't understand why. And I don't know if that's a local thing or what, but she said it's making her job really hard. Hard. And how bizarre because we feel like we are inundated with information at our fingertips now. You can do a birthing class online. You can do this. You can read that. You can listen to Australian birth stories. You can be so well we think we're so well educated going in rather than compared to my nana who just got pregnant and just went to the hospital and hoped for the best um that well they were taught how to put a nappy on or something you know very very different Mm -hmm. with all of this information this information age i wonder why it's still so hard like your midwife said wow that's really intriguing actually isn't it I know. And do you think too, um, I, I'm, I also think we're talking, I'm, well, there's a lot of not talking about this that goes on, but there is now a bit of a, a change in the air as well, right? That people are actually yeah. being more upfront. Some people, you know, you can find, you can find pockets of people who are talking about these things much more openly, like, like we yeah. are. And, um, and I, I was, I, I just wonder if, I think our mothers and grandmothers and great-grandmothers and aunties and, you know, great-aunts, did they just put up with stuff? You know, like, did they just think, well, this is how it is yeah. and it's what you must endure as a woman? It's, it's part the of, way it goes. That's right. Yes, exactly. And so must have had a load of problems that 
have not had any help or didn't get any assistance or you know yeah um, how sad when right? I, I worked in a rest home uh, well one of the things I did actually before Flynn coming back to that earlier question I was <laughs> a caregiver in a rest home mm-hmm. uh, I took a year out after high school before I went to university and I was a caregiver full-time and I'd done that all through high school as well in the weekends but um, I really loved it and so when I got uh, I got first diagnosed with prolapse when Flynn just after his birth for my first checkup okay with the gynecologist um six weeks later or whatever it was yes and she said oh you've got a bit of a prolapse it's really normal um it's uh, very common after a birth it would be a good idea to see a physio so I was lucky enough to see a physio yeah uh, which I know a lot of women don't uh, really great physio actually and uh, but she got me doing pelvic floor exercises in a pretty minimalist way I mean it was still really early after the birth and I think yeah. she did check me again a few months later and said yeah if you're doing them well that's good um, and I'd actually been pretty diligent about doing them, not okay. every day, but, you know, a few times a week. And But that was the way I was taught them then, which is actually quite different to how they teach them now. Yes. There's a lot more to it now in terms of how it syncs with your breathing and your diaphragm, et cetera. Yes, and your whole And core. releasing as well as tensing. Yeah, yeah that's yeah. right. There's so much more to it now, uh, which, of course, she couldn't have known um, then, but she, I'm sure she taught me as best she could. Yeah. But I remember um, the gynecologist saying oh you've got a bit of a bladder prolapse there but just you know it's not that big a deal uh, and then I kept having gynae checkups once a year because I haven't got a very good family history of um, okay. well I've got a family history of ovarian and breast cancer so I have to be ah, seen yes. by a gynecologist once a year okay and each year she said oh yep that prolapse uh, is still there and um you'll need surgery at some stage could you sorry could you could you feel it when she was saying it's there, could did you know it was no, there? Okay. No, no. Right. So, so when when I found out there was a prolapse, I barely gave it a moment's thought, to be honest. Sure. Like I, sure. Um, I, again, I thought oh, it was just a thing. You know, you had a baby. Things are yeah. a little bit different. Yeah. Um, no, no, not a clue. So that was way back, and um, and then yeah. So more recently, a few I don't know, five plus years ago, she said, oh, "You will need surgery at some stage," and and I didn't think to ask how will I know when I need surgery? Like, how is this going to be? Like, is this just a, like a lottery system? I don't know. Like, um, and, and then suddenly last year, this time last year, actually exactly a year ago, um, I was in a yoga class and I don't mean to, you know, be um, casting any kind of shadow over yoga because I love yoga. But I was in a yoga class doing this, a squat and it was a, like it's yin yoga, right? Like it's the most gentle, slow, yes relaxing yoga there is which is the kind of yoga I love not like I'm doing anything full on and doing an assisted squat and I assisted meaning I had my yoga mat rolled up under my heels which I always do because I find a squat hard felt major pain inside like major okay and I I remember it was bad at the time I remember stopping when I said to the yoga teacher afterwards oh what can I do instead of a squat because that just really didn't work for me and then, so I knew it was not good at the time because I wouldn't have talked about it with the yoga teacher otherwise. Yeah. And then the next few days, excruciating pain when right. I sat, like really terrible pain. Um, and I thought then, uh, hmm, okay, now I can feel something going on in there. Okay, yeah. Um, so I did a little bit of investigation myself. And my wife had also said a few days before, hmm, what's going on here? Because she could tell that there was something different something as different. well. Yeah. Yep. And and I was like, I don't know. But having worked in a rest home before, I had seen women with prolapse. 
and you did. When I'd been right? caring for them and showering them, etc. Yeah. And I suddenly thought, is this prolapse like a whole lot worse? Um, it wasn't like coming right out or anything like that, but it certainly felt different inside. And went to see a GP. Uh, I couldn't get in to see my gynecologist. She was out of town and went to see a different GP. Mine had yeah. retired. Yep. And this GP said, no, no, that's not prolapse at all. And I was like, what? I'm pretty sure you're wrong. Like, um, <laughs> that's not that's not how things used to be inside. <laughs> so um, I'm going to beg to differ on that one. Yes. Um, and then got in to see another GP and she was like, yeah, definitely. And it's not one organ, it's three. How confusing. Um, mm-hmm. And it all has spiraled from there. I just wrote a list actually of um, how many people I've seen. And <laughs> in the last year, I've seen two GPs, an orthopedic surgeon. I've been rushed to ED because the pain was so excruciating. Um, I've seen one, two, three, four, five, six gynecologists or gyne specialists. Yeah, gynees, yep. A yep. Um, I've now, I'm waiting for number seven, who is a gynecologist and a pain specialist. Um, I've seen three pelvic physios and one regular physio, a sports medicine doctor, uh, an acupuncturist. It just goes on and on and on and on. You know, like, and I mm. still have a lot of problems. Like, I'm not, yeah, not got to the bottom of it. And for those who can't see me, I'm shaking my head. No, 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 no. Like, just this is such a journey that is so full on that people don't understand. And I think you'll agree with me that around prolapse there is a misconception especially in that medical field that prolapse isn't painful I see that all the time prolapse won't kill you prolapse isn't painful you'll be fine just do some kegels off you go Mm -hmm. so Nicola my question would be with your three compartment prolapse do does anyone know what's causing the the pain inside no, and the pain causes me a lot more difficulty than the prolapses do, right? So okay. that's why I'm constantly trying to see different people to figure out what's actually causing the pain. That um, I have been told it could be pudendal neuralgia. Um, but then the last person I saw said, mm, I don't know that it is that nerve. There's so many nerves that go through the pelvis. It could be mm. that. It could be another one. Okay. And so the, apparently the pain specialist I'm seeing next might be better equipped to figure that out. But the theory, this kind of theory that I've been told, and uh, this is so, uh, I don't know, it, it really makes me cross that so many women have problems with, you know, incontinence, prolapse, pelvic pain, yes. uh, like so many, and we still have so little useful yeah. medicine around this, right? Absolutely. Like, it's so limiting. Um, the surgery has so many complexities in terms of success or not, yes. how, how well it lasts, how well it doesn't last, which surgery, which organs, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so many questions around it and risks, that's right. And I feel like if this was a male health issue, <laughs> this shit would be sorted so much better just by now. Like you know, that. like this just, just like makes that. me furious. I know. Yeah. And I, I do think we've been done a disservice by, um, yeah, being kept in the dark a lot actually about this and about people not talking not knowing that there's problems or even not knowing how to prevent them like that's another thing that um, really makes me cross you know when I think about because I've always been really active I love um, movement in all different kinds of ways I've had a gym membership since I was 14 um, although I haven't been there in the last year and 
when I think about stuff that I've done that's been given to me, mostly by personal trainers, but sometimes by physios, that's just not pelvic health aware at all. And has probably all, like I'm not blaming any one person or any one thing, but it's all contributed. And um, I've been doing lots of stuff that actually was not good for me. Yeah. And you've hit them really makes me furious. Yeah, absolutely. I had this, I mean, I've had this amazing chat with, um, with a lady called Miss Wright. She's here in Victoria and this is her plight. She is a trainer for fitness coaches and -hmm. there is nothing in that literacy about pelvic health at all. It's missing. Mm. So as, as mm-hmm. she would say, we've got these young 20-year-old, really fit, amazing guys who are coming to learn how to be a personal trainer because that's just what they want to do. But they're not being taught about women's pelvic health at all. And mm-hmm. then they'll get women to do kettlebells or do all these things without preparing their body properly first. And then what happens is... Um, then when a woman has a baby, often the vaginal birth is blamed for all the pelvic issues. But in fact, there was probably a really long trail of pelvic floor dysfunction Mm. going on for years before. So yes, forceps can be a cause and yes, vaginal births can be a cause, but that pelvic uh, floor probably wasn't that great before anyway. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Because we're not sure. I'm so much stronger now than I was before in terms of all the stuff I've learned. Um, yeah. And now I've got all these different, mostly quite gentle, but, um, you know, really targeted exercises to do. Hmm. Um, and I do them pretty religiously. Like my wife said, nobody could be more dedicated to their exercises. You know, yeah. like she sees me doing them all the time. Yeah. Um, and it's so, there's so much more information now, but I, I still like, um, if I see people, you know, like working out in a park or something like that, and they're doing things with you know, massive kettlebells or something, and I think, I really hope you know how to use your pelvic floor properly when you're working. Before you pick it up, yeah. Before you pick it up and how to release in between, mm-hmm. like I fear for your pelvic floor. Like I really do. Mm-hmm. And I just, and I, and even uh, with being in lockdown again and seeing my wife um, doing her very full-on workouts at home because she's really into fitness and um, I said to her the other day, um, I've heard a really good thing about, because we've talked about um, how you, you know, I, obviously she sees all that I've been through and yeah. would love me to not be going through it, but I'm sure she doesn't want to go through anything vaguely similar herself either. So we've definitely talked about lots of pelvic floor stuff and and I've talked about, you know, um, breathing out and you know, doing your pelvic floor exercises as you exhale and then releasing as you inhale, etc. And I heard a really good thing on a podcast, which was blow before you go. Okay. So yeah. it's not even just about that timing, but it's about actually releasing the breath just before you do the exertion. So the, the, the out breath comes slightly before. Yep. Because that, that releases the intra-abdominal pressure a little bit earlier. And I thought that makes sense. And so I said to her, oh, have you, have you heard this? and she's like no okay I'll try that so she's trying that and then she told her trainer about it and her trainer's an amazing person really great but her trainer said oh it doesn't matter for you because you haven't got uh, floor <laughs> issues yet and I thought yet. this is a really great trainer like really no criticisms about her whatsoever yeah. but it is that myth right those misconceptions mm. that oh she hasn't had a baby and 
um, as you say, trainers have often had very little or nothing None. in their training about this. And mm. yeah, nothing yet. But when she gets to 65, you know, like it's an Menopause. enormous number of women who have, it's something like 75% of women over the age of 65 have some level of urine leakage. You know, like it's, it's massive. It is huge. And it is, it's another thing that actually, it's not that complicated. Like we can be taught some very simple things that can make yeah. such a big difference. Yeah, to try and prevent it or minimize the symptoms and things like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. It's, yeah, it, it, I get why you cross. I, I'm feeling quite cross as we're sitting here just going, yeah, and this is why I'm continuing to do what I do so that hopefully by the time Elsie, she's only five, she works her way through her body grows and changes. She's better equipped to understand all this stuff. I just found out recently that apparently a lot of professionally trained dancers and horse riders, women, have problems mm. with their pelvic floor because they're always so tense because they like you mm. said they don't do that release it's part you, the release is just as important as it is, the, yeah. you know I'm yeah. doing I'm doing it with my hands when no one can see me. <laughs> I'm doing the <laughs> pelvic lift just in case anyone wants to know the lift is just as important as the release so yeah I do think that we need to be looking and I know people always say this and people shake their heads we need to be looking at educating at school. So I oh, know that. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. And it's not another thing to put on the teachers, but it needs to be, the curriculum needs to just be updated because I even know in sex education, when they do the period talk, the boys get separated to the room with the girls and the, the talk is very different. But in fact, I want my son to know how to care for someone who's having a period too. Do you know mm, what I mean? Sure. Yeah, oh, absolutely. That's right. I know. That's right. It, it is. It's really, really bananas, isn't it? And I, and same. I mean, we're two women with a son, yeah. and you know, we've we've talked. He knows all kinds of things about women's bodies and about periods, and he knows that I'm having trouble with my health. He sees me doing all these exercises on the floor all the time because I have all yeah. these things that I do for my glutes and core and all this kind of stuff. And I just lie on the floor and do them while I watch TV at night. And um, so that's perfectly normal behaviour in our household, right? Which is yeah. probably great because he's now recovering from surgery himself and has to do his own. <laughs> Rehab, rehab yeah. everyone and, rehab. Yeah, Let's perfectly rehab. normal in our house. Yeah, that's right. My <laughs> wife had a knee replacement a few years ago. She did all her exercises diligently too. So everybody does their stuff, you know. That's good. Um, but yeah, you're right. They, it's, and also men can have pelvic health issues too. Like percent. It's not just women and non-binary people and people transitioning. You know, like gender yes. diverse people. There's so many issues for them, and so it's just it's a minefield, and there's just so many gaps that need to be filled and I think that's probably why the people above say oh it's too hard it's in the too hard basket because there are so many gaps and there are so many variables that need to be addressed and it's just too hard for now and I think that we need to continue like you said I feel the inertia is coming that we will be working on this to get better um, because the more we know the better we can do right um, mm -hmm. just a matter of how it's implemented is probably just a matter of time I'd say yeah but it's the funding too right like oh it's yeah the money that needs to go into the research and the um the opportunities I think there's some pretty amazing things happening in different parts of the world mm. and to get that stuff happening fast enough that people can really benefit from it um I was interviewed recently for an article in the New Zealand Herald and 
the question at the end that the journalist asked me, which I could predict everything else she's going to ask, but the one that stumped me and I wished I was more prepared for was, so if you could go and talk to um, Jacinda Ardern, the Prime Minister, or Chris mm-hmm. Hipkins, the Health Minister, tomorrow about this, what would you want to say? Good question. Finally, I had a moment to think about this one. Um, But well, here's your opportunity. You can answer it. Yeah, yeah, I know. Go for it. (laughs) I know. So I said, well, I do. I think this should be part of our education. You know, it should be part of health education, like you just said before. Mm -hmm. It needs to be just absolutely mainstream, completely normalised. I mean, they talk about things like how to, um, you know, environmentally friendly period products, right? Like that's brilliant. And um, and so talking about this stuff is much more normal. It's not all secretive like it was when I was, you know, like... Uh, even me, yeah. We got any... Right, yeah. Hardly anything at all about periods and, and certainly nothing about sex or pelvic health. And uh, I would be saying, like, this needs to be just part of the curriculum like, like you. And then I talked about it with my pelvic physio and she said, oh, and you know what I would say? And I said, no, what would you say? And she mm-hmm. said, I would say to Jacinda, so how many women in your family? Let's do some maths. So if you've got this many women in your whanau, in your extended family, uh, how many of those women, given what we know, are likely to have trouble with pain, uh, you know, really significant gynecological issues, prolapse, incontinence? Do the maths, right? Like do the maths on how many women this effects and how much time it takes of their lives, how much time off work or how much, you know, inconvenience time away from their families or the cost, you know, like every appointment. Productivity. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Every appointment. If I think about the cost and the time and the mm. emotional energy that's gone into, I've traveled the whole length of the country. Yeah. You know, to see people. And it's just an enormous investment, mm. you know. And you know, that's at a personal level. If you multiply that <laughs> however many times that's just a lot of waste really yeah and I don't think anyone's factoring in those costs hence why it's all placed privately on I'm sure most of your appointments have Mm. been privately funded and Mm -hmm. um to try and get the answers and some women don't have I mean I I know that I've been very lucky to find surgeons and then go to other surgeons and pay $250 up to 300 I think $380 each time Mm. but some women don't have access to that and then they of just don't not. see anyone. Yeah. No. Or they live rurally. There is no one for them to see, you know, like yeah. uh, I've, I mean, I live in a reason a pretty small city. And so I'm, you know, there's good people here, but I am limited, which is why I've gone elsewhere. But I've thought if I didn't have health insurance, this yeah. would be impossible. You know, like That's there's no way I would have been able to see these people and how lucky I am that I have yeah. that and I can do that. Yeah, um, but that's resources that a lot of people would not have, and so there must be a lot of people suffering in silence. A hundred percent, and the, and then of course because you've got those extra layers of taboo and embarrassment and shame, then they're not mm. going to talk about it either. So we won't ever really know, you know, the true mm. statistics because people are just not counted. They're not saying anything. So hopefully we can change. And Jacinda, I know she's going to be listening to this episode. And so she's certainly going to be. Nothing else going on right now. So she'll be listening. (laughs) She can come on and chat with us and say, yes, this is what we're going to do. From an Australian perspective, I mean, I don't know what it's like living in New Zealand, but the women here look to her like a bit of a beacon because it seems like she's open to the thoughts and open to the conversations at least. 
like I said, mm. it's just the, the perception we get here. I don't know. And we don't need to go into politics, but yeah. <laughs> uh, I know. If I think if there was an opportunity to um, get some progress here in New Zealand, it probably would be now. Okay. Um, I know there's been a petition go to Parliament very recently about trying to get um, much more accessible postnatal physio available for everybody. Yes. Uh, which would be amazing. Part of the issue, though, is the specialty of physios, right? Because physios get very little in their training about pelvic health as well. Yeah. And they have to, um, you know, to be able to do this work, they have, obviously it's a really, really intimate and specialised area of work. Um, and so they've got to do the training themselves right. to be able to do that. And yeah. I think they have to go to Australia. So I don't think the oh, training right. is in New Zealand. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's what my physio said. Okay. Um, but yes I know there's just so much that could be done and I it just it's a it's one of those things it's kind of like what I was um saying before about fertility that until you're in it you might kind of think oh how big a deal is that yeah um and actually now that I'm going through it I'm like this is a really huge very debilitating health issue and Um, this is the thing right it's it's always a spectrum for some women like in the beginning when you did the, the doctor had to tell you you had a prolapse, you couldn't really feel anything. And so a lot, of, mm. a, little, uh, a lot of women are like that. And then you go right up until where you are now and it's life altering. And mm. unfortunately, because there is such a spectrum that's not publicized, it's not published, is it? It's, you know, prolapse is just not a prolapse. I always say prolapse is not a prolapse is not a prolapse because I know I've been questioned myself about, so why can't you stand and walk from another woman who's had a prolapse but stage one mm-hmm. and yeah. it hasn't affected her life? She can still run with the pessary, but for someone like me who can't wear a pessary because of the avulsions from forceps, it's, it's very different. It's very, very life-altering and life-changing. That I wish that message was getting out there a little bit more. Oh, absolutely. That's right. And so not only is it... An- uh, you know, really debilitating for some and not for others. But as you say, it changes at different points in life. So it can change from one person, you know, from one year to the next, or even I find from one day to the next, what yeah. I can and can't do with comfort change. And that's really impossible for other people to understand as well. Definitely. Um, but coming back to what you said before about those messages, like prolapse doesn't cause pain or it won't kill you. I've heard both of those things said to me. And I'm ready to thump, honestly. I could punch the next gynecologist <laughs> who says to me, prolapse doesn't cause pain. Because I said, um, I've, I've started getting quite stroppy with them. Because actually, if you look at the symptoms of prolapse, pain is there for a lot of women. The people describe it differently. Some people That's say right. heaviness or dragging or discomfort. or, And then some people it's, it's considered really excruciating. And I think it probably relates to how debilitating it is and what stops you from doing and how you interpret in your that life. from a psychology point of view yeah 100% if it really really and there is research that shows that the way we interpret an injury um, is very much influenced by what it impacts on us doing or not doing right so a pianist who has an injury to their finger that could be the end of their career whereas to somebody else it could be just a, a little bit of an inconvenience but you know exactly sure so, but for them, it's catastrophic. And so they rate their pain differently. Mm. And um, I think that's absolutely what's happened with me. There's so many forms of physical activity that I can't do or 
would only do with a great deal of caution and I'd be kind of worried things are going to suddenly get worse again because I went into yoga okay and I came out not okay so I've had that experience yeah Um, absolutely and the prolapse doesn't cause pain is one that I've heard and also I've had a number of gynecologists say or urogyne say it won't kill you and I'm very aware that they've probably had to give really dreadful news to somebody else that week you know like Mm -hmm. that's there's a lot of very you know, dreadful conditions that they do have to um, help people with. But also, if you have chronic pain, that's really depressing. Hmm. Really depressing. And Nicola, I will share with you, I also sit on a panel um, of private prolapse groups here in Australia and in America. And we are talking and seeing women who are on the verge of suicide on a weekly basis. I'm not a trained counsellor. I'm just a mum who lives with prolapse. But then I need to quickly try and connect them with a mental health professional, like in Ireland and New Zealand and all over, because for someone who says prolapse won't kill you, I'm seeing that it does. Okay, Mm. I'm seeing, okay, Mm -hmm. so it's not like cancer where the cells are going to kill you. But I'm seeing women who are living such a debilitated life or women with colostomy bags and their, their poo is attached to the outside of their, you know, their body that for them, it's killed them. It's killed the person who they once were already and they don't want to physically be here in this space anymore. So I caution anyone, medical professional, friend, sister, mother, whatever, please don't ever tell someone that prolapse cannot kill you because you're wrong. Mm. Yeah. So wrong. Oh, absolutely. And it's actually really validating to hear you say that, although very sad as well, you know, but I absolutely believe that to be true, 100%. Mm. It's taken me to some very dark places, I have to say. Yeah. And I'm those intrusive thoughts are another layer of taboo and privacy that we don't often open up and share uh, even with our closest circle because we don't want to hurt people. So women with prolapse are carrying a shitload of shit. Sorry to just swear like that, but there's no (laughs) other way to say it. Like not only are we physically carrying it, but we're emotionally and mentally carrying it every day. It doesn't go away. Mm. It doesn't have a day off. It doesn't have a public holiday. It doesn't have a rest. It's just always there. You know, um, mm. and sometimes well, actually at the beginning, um, oh, you go. No, it's okay. Go ahead. At the beginning, when this first happened, and I, I remember saying to the um, one of the first gynecologists I saw, like, this is like, why do we not talk about it? Like, I felt so alone with it, you know, like it's so um, isolating to go through all this and think that you're the only person in the world who is. Um, and of course she could say oh well, you're not you know there's lots of other people going through similar experiences but yeah it is really because it's taboo or seen as taboo um that makes it very very difficult because you don't know it could be the person next to you you know standing mm-hmm. in line at the shop yeah well not next to you now two meters away you know, <laughs> socially distanced but um and, and then I just thought oh this is rubbish I'm just going to talk about it like I'm just going to I'm not going to buy into this conspiracy of silence around it because it's just our bodies, right? It's yes. the same as if you had a problem with your ear, you know, Any like other anatomy. 
finger or anything, you know, like that's right. Um, And so I'm just going to talk about it and maybe in doing so that helps somebody else. And I wrote a Facebook post um, a few months back and it was sort of the first time I'd like put anything about this on there. And I talked about it with lots of friends individually Mm. or in person. If I saw people in person, they'd be like, oh, you look really uncomfortable because I was walking really weirdly, you know, like really weirdly because it took forever to get a pessary that sort of worked. Oh, that's another thing. Yeah. (laughs) How many hours have we got for this pocket? (laughs) Um, But anyway, I was like, like people would say, are you okay? Like even my clients would say, are you okay? Like you don't look you look really tired or you look very uncomfortable with how you're sitting and I just had to say I've got back pain which is like a euphemism (laughs) I wonder how many people say they've got back pain when they've got something else entirely I say it's completely untrue yeah oh right I say oh mommy mommy can't pick you up she's got a sore back all right yeah Yeah. well my my son's old enough he said to me what are you talking about on this podcast today and I said oh I'm talking with this woman about you know the health issues that I've been going through you know the gynecological stuff and he's like oh okay have fun he said (laughs) (laughs) such a sweetie thank you um yeah but oh god I'm rambling I don't know where I was going um people would say people would say you look so uncomfortable so it was really obvious to anybody who saw me in the latter part of last year when I was in excruciating pain yeah notwithstanding what people had said to me about this not causing pain mm-hmm. I looked dreadful and felt dreadful and um and I it was really noticeable but then I thought I'm not just going to talk about this individually I'll put something on Facebook about it and I wrote this post um and I didn't really think I mean I thought people would be nice about it um but I wasn't at all prepared for the response that I got which was mm. really lovely time. Yeah, like, lovely but quite overwhelming. Okay. Because so many people messaged me privately, and it got shared in a few different groups and uh, in a few different places around the world, and I just got completely swamped. Yeah. Um, and it was all these women saying, "That's me too." Oh. And I didn't even go into a lot of detail. You know, I didn't, I don't think I even mentioned the word prolapse. And I, I talked about pain, neuralgia, because of whatever it is that causes this pain to radiate right down my leg and into my yeah. back. Um, and I, you know, I, I've got all these different diagnoses that some of which I probably do have and some of which I maybe don't. And I just was like not prepared for the mm. response at all. It was actually wow. heartbreaking. Wow, I can still, I can see that emotion and obviously we can hear it's struck a chord even talking about it. And then did you say that was about a year ago, that post, or a few months ago? Uh, I think it was like, um, oh, time's got such a weird concept. Yeah, it's, I don't it's know so what, strange, I'm, yeah. No even, what, what, even if it was I think it was a, a few months back. I think it was yeah. like Easter around then. It's still it carrying a really heavy emotional Feeling. Well, it was just like the fact that all these women were saying, oh, some people responded like in a comment, so it was more public, but only, mm. you know, seen by my friends. But mm. some people said, oh, wow, yeah, this is not the same as me, but I'm going through this, which was, you know, relevant to all, all private intimate issues. And then lo- loads of messages and loads of people taking, I couldn't even look at them all after a while. Yes, I just oh. I felt terrible, but I couldn't. There were so many tags and things. I was just like, I can't even... 
too much. Yeah, it was overwhelming. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And it was so sad because people were like, oh, I haven't told anybody or. Yeah. Yeah, I thought it was just me or, you know, like, you know, these are really well-resourced women, well-educated, privileged women mm. who are like, far out, this is hard and I'm going through it too. Uh, wow. And I was like, wow, we're just not really supporting ourselves and each other nope. enough, are we? Nope. I just find we've become really easy to shoot each other down, to judge, to pass judgment, to criticise, mm. um, and me included. I'll put my hand up. I've been that person too. I'm trying really hard to to shift that, and I think becoming a mum did help that. Um think about well wonder wonder what they're going through you know what I mean but sometimes it's just really hard because we're so depleted within ourselves to be able to stop think reflect then talk is a bit of a process but Mm. to have that women saying yeah me too me too I must you must have thought you've opened Pandora's box here and wow I did I did I really did and I intended to say more about it and then I was like I actually can't like I can't deal with more um uh, I, I, people didn't intend it to be an additional emotional load for me, but um, it's that's how it was going to feel. So I was like, okay, no, not yet. <laughs> I'm going to have to, yeah, mm. yeah. And I guess still, you're still really along your journey in a discovery phase. You're still working out. Like you're still going to see that pain specialist um, to come. So you still don't know really what's causing it, and then how you can possibly treat it. So. I don't know how you could give to others when you're still in that zone for yourself. So giving yourself time, obviously, is totally fine. <laughs> if, you, if you need someone yeah, to I say that. Oh, thank you. I, I don't know what I expect of this now. I don't know if I expect this. I don't think this is going to go away, right? Like I think mm. um, there's, I've been told, yes, you should, no, you shouldn't have surgery. No, you shouldn't have surgery. Yes, you could have surgery and we could do this. Yes, we could, but we'd do that and not this. Mm. Um, no, you definitely shouldn't have surgery. And so if they're specialists can't agree, how am I supposed to make a decision? So um, I do everything I can in terms of my own, you know, motivation, doing my exercises. Yes, keep yourself going. Yeah. And with all the things that I have found to be helpful, like swimming is really good for me. Walking is good. I've just discovered Pilates, which I think you're into as well. Oh, I love and, reformer um, Pilates. Yeah. I can't yeah. go at the moment, of course, because we're in lockdown, but um, one day I'll buy my own. And it really helps. Like that's mm. just been one of the best things to make me feel much more integrated again because I kind of felt like a series of parts for a long time. <laughs> and that's just really something else. And I love it. It's just a great thing to do. So I do what I can, but I don't actually think this is going to be, it's definitely not going to go away. Like I don't feel comfortable enough with most of the surgery options Mm. to go there yet. I'm going to probably wait for things to get better in terms of what surgery can be. It's so hard to know because again, I've, I listen and read a lot of women's stories about surgery um, as, as part of that you know, admin group. And for every failed story, there might be half a success story. I don't know. It seems to be there's a lot more failure stories and success. And I don't know if it's just because women don't want to share them or um, a lot of people are just, yeah, not having a great experience. But there's so many complexities to that too because 
I know women who have been told after post-surgery that they'll be right to go back and live their life six weeks. I'm like, everyone knows that no major surgery, you need at least 12 weeks to even start for your body to heal and to recover something that major. But yeah, that inconsistency, I'm, I'm not ready to put my hand up for something that for me personally, I've been told there's a failure rate of 90% within the first two years. Now, I'm pretty good at taking risks. That's just not one of them. I can't go through a full hysterectomy, menopause at 40 and do all of that with two small kids only to have it fail. I don't know if Mm. I'd still be around. That would probably Mm. tip me over the edge. So Mm -hmm. learning to be, to to live with this in the best way I can is, is what I'm doing. There's no other option really. Yeah, and I think like you, I I've, I mean, we're all given different stats and different um, <laughs> recommendations and it's really Confusing. very difficult to make sense of that. But, yeah, and, and absolutely this woman for whom surgery obviously works really well and is amazing. And I think you probably don't hear from those women because they're not mm-hmm. hanging around in the groups because Ooh, they're, they're not finished, yeah. getting to, yeah, uh, that's not where they're at in their journey right now. But, um, but I do think I've made a lot of progress in a lot of other ways. And in some ways, I think I've learned a lot about my body. Okay. And I thought I knew a lot before, but I think there's a lot of other stuff still to learn. And yeah, the things that I found helpful have actually been, most of them not medical at all. So, um, <laughs> I mean, my physio is amazing and I would like, I just, she's been fantastic. And before I found her, um, I the first person who really, really helped me with this was, um, Dr. Brianne Grogan, who's got Fem Fusion Fitness, oh, yeah. most incredible YouTube channel. I've heard of Fem Fusion as well, yeah. Oh, so that was when I was Googling what is going on, like trying to figure out what these pain symptoms were, and it took me to a video of hers about pudendal neuralgia and relaxing the pelvic floor. And I watched this video, and I was, did her exercises for a couple of days, and I was like, oh, actually, that helped. And <laughs> wow. so I started listening to her podcast, and I bought her book on Kindle yeah. and I just read it like in one session basically yeah, yeah. and um and then I messaged her and she's so responsive and she's oh, so wow. lovely and helpful and um she's just been absolutely amazing and I bought one of her programs and it's brilliant that's so good um, to hear. So she would be a great person to talk to actually for this yeah. podcast um yeah. she's so helpful so helpful and I honestly don't know where I'd be without her is she based, then, is that the one based in America she's American but she lives in Oh, Germany at the okay. moment. Yep. Yeah. Um, and she's got a really fantastic podcast herself. Mm-hmm. Um, That's Fem Fusion, it, isn't it? Yeah, Fem yeah. Fusion. We fitness. can pop the link in the show notes so people yeah, can find it. Yeah. yeah. It's it's always good to share. Like if we can connect people with other people. Another one is Michelle Ken Kenway. I think I've said her name mm, yeah, on YouTube. Right. Where she teaches mm-hmm. people how to moo poo and do all of those things. And they, I mean, they're giving all of that, sharing all of that on YouTube for free. And I think we just need to oh, yeah. connect people to these amazing women who are helping mm. in that space. Yeah. And yeah, that's right. That's for sure. There's this whole other kind of like pelvic health me too web thing going on, <laughs> which you'll be aware of and probably more aware of than I am. But just the bits and pieces that I've connected with and joined up with have just been fantastic. Yeah. And I know I've made some progress because um, I remember 
one day really early on trying to get a pessary that fitted and my mm. physio was trying to get me to try a different one different size and different shape and I was like I couldn't get it in I couldn't get it out and she's there trying to teach me and I just burst into tears and I was like this is bullshit like I'm just <laughs> this is such bullshit that I have to learn to do this and yes. it's just like a crazy thing that I'm being asked to do put this weird silicon donut inside my body and and she, she's like yeah I know I'm really sorry um but you're doing really well and then that was a few months ago. And then the other day, in one of these groups that I'm in, somebody was asking a question about pessaries and, oh, God, I'm having heaps of trouble getting it out. Can somebody give me some ideas? Well, I just rattled off like seven different points of things that I've learned. And I was like, well, look at me go. Because you know, like <laughs> a few months ago, I was like, this is crap and I can't believe it. I really hate this. And then I'm like, well, if you do this, you know, yeah. <laughs> you know it made me think, mm, I've come a long way. Absolutely. And so time has made a difference. And also um, meditation. I don't think I started okay. turning a corner until I started meditating on a regular oh, basis. So hard. I've got the Headspace app. I put it on for the kids. And I know I've been trying, my counselor said to me, you need to do meditation stuff. And then, but I used to always try and sit there and try and clear out my thoughts. And now I realize I can't do that because I'm an incessant thinker. Now I just kind of travel with them. But finding the time with young kids to meditate is its a choice that I obviously haven't given enough value because I'm not doing it. It's easy for me to say, I don't have the time. <laughs> well, you know what I found? Like, I know what you mean. And I used to meditate really regularly a few years ago and it just was so good. Like, it was like it took the edge off. It was made me feel like I'd had one glass of wine, basically. Yeah. Like, it just took the edge off things. And I was like, I don't know why I stopped. It was probably a time thing. I just got out of the habit. Yep. And so when I was getting so much pain, not getting anywhere, so frustrated with the medical systems. And um, I was like, and I knew we had some really big things ahead. My son's surgery was coming up. Um, and I thought, what can I do that's going to empower me that I can do regardless of where I am, if, if he's in hospital, whatever. And because my son had to have really major surgery on his leg. And we knew that was coming, it'd been coming for a long time. And we knew the recovery was going to be massive as well. And it's, yes. it's ongoing, but it's, it's going well. But I thought I've got to prepare myself. This is all going to happen at the same time as, um, you know, some other big things like starting a new business and all kinds of stuff. I know I'm going to meditate. I'm going to make myself do it. <laughs> and I actually only need to do um, 10 minutes a day. Okay. And, and I honestly think I only have focus in my mind from the space between one heartbeat and the next. Like it's that short. <laughs> you know? And then my mind is off elsewhere. But it doesn't seem to matter. Like I still feel the benefits of it so okay. I really really believe in it and the thing and you can get you can lie down and do it with your kids too right so yeah um it's based the kids versions are great like I the love kids tracks are really fantastic yeah and even if people don't have headspace insight timer is another really good one and that's okay. got a load of really great free meditations like thousands of free meditations on there okay um, so I like to really good one too. yeah yeah and I'm also a big fan of the Curable app. I don't know if you've seen that, but that's no, one that's kept coming up for me. Okay. Um, I can give you the link to that too, but yeah, sure. that's a really good, it's not free. Um, you can get a trial period, I think, but that's really helped me as good. well. It has different meditation programs, information about chronic pain, not specific to pelvic issues, but, but just, yeah. the stuff about pain is really helpful. Journaling exercises and okay. um, some, you know, sort of psychology strategies, basically. And oh, good. So those things have all really helped me. And having some EMDR has been really, really good too. Okay. Uh, it's amazing that I could talk about my son's birth. 
without crying a lot. And I attribute that to EMDR because that's what I started having it about. It's about birth trauma. And um, I haven't fully finished processing it, but I've certainly made a lot of progress. So all of those things have helped me. And, you know, most of those are just not medical. Yeah. For, for our listeners, Jim, and obviously because you've got that clinical psychology background, could you just um, just pack apart just a little bit of MDMR? What does it stand for? What, what does it actually do? Oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I am a clinical psychologist. I'm not trained in EMDR, although I'm planning on doing the training, actually, because I've now found it so powerful. I feel like it's sure. unfair to not offer it. Yep. Um, eye movement desensitization reprogramming I want to say but I might have that wrong um all my colleagues will be like no um (laughs) sorry and I'm sorry I did put you on the spot 100% no 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 it's fine (laughs) it's actually about helping your brain helping your brain process memories differently so when we uh when we experience something as trauma and like sometimes we think of trauma as being the huge things, right? Like natural disasters, mm-hmm. um, being in a terrible car accident, etc. Those are big T traumas, like that yeah. really obviously would be universally experienced. Yeah. But, you know, being in Afghanistan right now, like all of that yeah, would be, of we'd all experience those things as trauma. But there's also little T traumas as well, which are the okay. more, the kind of lower level things that for some people might be okay, but they're not for others. And um and birth trauma could be like one woman might experience a particular kind of birth as actually fine. Mm-hmm. And another woman, it might look to other people like it was fine, but it was absolutely devastating for her. Yeah. And her experience of it in her body could be like a, absolutely a form of trauma. Yep. And, um, and yeah, I just found that I, whenever people talked about their um, child's birth, I just did not want to be part of that conversation yeah Um, I just like opt out basically and just yeah did not want to go there and um and felt really ripped off about certain elements of it too particularly once these health issues you know came to the fore but even before that too and so EMDR is a way of uh, a you know somebody's trained in it a mental health practitioner helping you process that memory and putting it into a different part of the storage system in your brain okay and it's a really interesting process because you think about something, you don't necessarily have to voice all the detail or you don't have to voice all the detail around it, but they move something in front of your eyes, often their finger, but there can be other tools that they use too. And it's really weird, like how it works. It's really weird. I felt immediate, immediate relief right from my first session. I don't think that's necessarily always people's experience. I kind of knew a lot about it and knew oh, yeah how it worked beforehand they do a lot of platform building too before you start so you've got to be able to take yourself to a safe space mentally first as well okay um and they teach you how to do that um but it's a really fantastic process and there's a lot more people getting trained in it now because it has pretty good outcome research for a lot of a lot of different conditions i've heard amazing things about it and i just started that journey with my psychologist before our lockdown and she did say it's probably better to do in person face to face but I felt like I failed my first session I was like I didn't do it right did I and she's like oh well we'll try next week next time and I was like it's one of those things where you've got to keep keep at it I think it's like meditation I don't think Mm. there is a doing it wrong like I think I think we can all feel like we're not doing it right like I'm yeah. I had a dollar for every client who said to me oh I don't meditate right like I can't concentrate and I'm just yeah. like 
the fact that you're doing it is what counts. It's practice. Um, and yeah. I actually felt like after my first EMDR session, I was like, what just happened? Like, I don't understand yeah. that at all. I don't know what we just <laughs> that did. That was me. Um, I don't. It makes no sense to me. I think that's how it is. Like, I think that's okay. what the experience of it is like. So exactly. I wouldn't say you did it wrong. Okay. Um, and I think it just, it, it helps. I don't know. I just, I felt some, a little shift, like immediately. And, okay. and I didn't, I couldn't understand why or That's how it. that was, but I knew I was, because I had some hard stuff that happened in the next few weeks. And I actually cope with those things That's probably it. better than I thought I would have. So, yeah. Yeah. So, but it is worth sticking with. It's definitely not a one and done kind of thing. Yeah, no, no, yeah. I, I kind of, I understood that. That's, you know, that's fine. And it, I, I know that you mentioned before you have now gone into your private practice um, after being with, you know, in a big, big clinic for a really long time. So obviously COVID has changed that path for you, but where are you hoping, like, what are you hoping to see? Are you thinking that you'll probably work with more women in this pelvic health space now that you've got all of this knowledge and lived experience? Mm, yeah, I've, I used to do a lot of work with chronic pain, um, more to do with, you know, injuries sustained and sporting accidents and things like okay. that in the past, earlier on in my career. So it's not completely unfamiliar, but I found it really hard to work with chronic okay. pain and help people get progress. And actually now that I've had my own uh pretty major or am going through my own pretty major experience of it I do want to be able to work with more people along those lines um, mm -hmm. and I think there's such a lot of need you know like because it doesn't need to be so isolating it doesn't need to be taboo it's really helpful to be able to talk about these things with somebody with some insight it doesn't mean you have to have had the experience but um, it really does help yeah um, yeah and so I would really love actually what I wished was there when I was early on in this process and I'd really like to create this um, and I've got a really lovely big room to work from where I could do this is have small groups of women uh, where we can bring in speakers on all different kinds of topics, right? So physio, um, holistic well-being, yes. massage, um, you know, whatever else we'd, we'd kind of co-create it in terms of what else they think would be useful. That sounds wonderful. Um, and bring in some psychology strategies too for coping with, you know, having significant limitations on your life that mm. are invisible to other people. Yeah. Um, so, wow. yeah, that's what I would like to do. In the once I get back to my office, I have what one day in my new office. Yeah. Lockdown. <laughs> that's really yeah. exciting. I can't wait for your world and the rest of the world to open up so that that can happen. Um, yeah, that's wonderful. I, because it is a whole body thing, isn't it? It's not just your it mental. Is a whole body it's, thing. It's, it's your whole we're all connected and it's all linked and we don't work in separate. It's all in unison. So if you can get that going, that would be amazing. I'd love to hear when you're up and running, um, especially if you're going to do like a group Zoom session or something where us Aussies and other women around the world could possibly join in. I don't know if you're thinking about that. but Oh, I would love to be able to do that kind of thing. I, have to, I think I will start small and see where it goes. Yeah. And then, but I can absolutely see this is a thing that would be really useful Wonderful. for so many people. And so I guess we all know through COVID that we can do a lot by technology. Can do anything, um, yeah. Yeah, we, we're kind of so much more conversant with how it all works. So I will keep you posted, absolutely. Thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. I do just want to say thank you for being so open and honest and raw, I guess. I think our listeners are going to resonate with everything you have said today. So thank you so much, Nicola. 
Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you for inviting me. And um, I want to say too, I really appreciate all that you're doing. Like I, I think it's so remarkable and so hopeful actually seeing <laughs> other women like you um, picking up the reins and just running with them, you know, because um, it all helps, you know, every, every opportunity that there is to let other people know that they're not alone. I and hope so. A lot of things that can help. It's just, it's actually vital. It's really yeah. vital. So I love everything that you're doing. Thank you for inviting me to talk. <laughs> Thanks. Bye for now. <laughs> bye bye. I really love that point today that Nicola made about. If we do some simple maths about the sheer number of women that prolapse affects, 50% of us, that's one in two, and the amount of time and costs, both financially and emotionally, what a huge amount of resources that is trying to fix something. Surely this would be better spent in the prevention over a treatment, right? So just like our favorite saying at Brave Mama, when we know better, we can do better. But to be fair, what if the we, meaning those in charge of our country, just really had no idea how bad this situation is? How can they do better? So this is where you come in. Share this episode and podcast with someone who you feel might be able to help make a difference in this space, no matter how big or small. It just makes sense. And for you personally, if you find anything from this episode that sounds like you and you're feeling lost or alone, you can join the Brave Mamahood. We have a private group called Tips and Tricks for Women Living with Prolapse. It's over on Facebook, but we'll drop a link in the show notes below. Next week, we are very excited to be bringing you a two-part series with the pioneer of pop, the amazing Sherry Palm is the founder of APOPS. What's APOPS, you ask? It's the Association for Pelvic Organ Prolapse Support. This is a global space for women supporting other women with pop. We look forward to having you tune in next week. Bye for now. Brave, my-